Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode of Out of Patience is brought to you courtesy of Amgen, who is also the signature sponsor of our groundbreaking documentary series, The Cancer Mavericks, A History of Survivorship. On with the show. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer, and now, stupid healthcare, and I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together, because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the show. Another good one for you today. Alan Russell is the vice president of research over at our friends at Amgen, and he's got a long list of esteemed creds. So deep breath. He is the Highmark Distinguished Career Professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering and the director of the Disruptive Health Technology Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. More deep breaths. He's the founding director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. And what's more, he's received the U.S. Army's Greatest Invention Award, three Carnegie Awards for Excellence, and Rolling Stone Magazine ranked him number 32 on the top 100 people who will change America. So despite being a baller of the highest order, Alan talks about the importance of humility starting his career on the factory floor, and the importance of mastering serendipity. One last note is that he's not that great doing his southern accent, but he's pretty much a master of everything. Here he is, Alan Russell. Alan Russell? Yes. Welcome to Out of Patience. Thank you very much. You're in for a hell of a ride. Well, I hope so. So, you ever get, but I'm not an MD? Oh, all the time. <laughs> is there a doctor here? All the time. I'm a doctor. All not the that time. kind of doctor. One time I was on Singapore Airlines flying across the ocean in the middle of the night. The flight attendant shakes me and she's, Dr. Russell, Dr. Russell, we need your help in the back. Oh, dear. And I said, I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> and she said, you're the only doctor we have. Oh, dear God. So I went back. This is totally some kind of city Pollock movie waiting to happen <laughs> that's crazy you have a t-shirt that says i'm not that kind of thing you I make should. a fortune you know, selling that that's a great idea register that domain yeah, i'm not okay. that kind of doctor.com that sounds you'll good. make a fortune we'll do it together boom we're done <laughs> so i can't help but notice you don't have a very obvious british accent mm -hmm. why is that well you know i left england what 35 years ago so my accent's somewhere in the middle of the atlantic at this point right if i go home they accuse me of being american if i stay in america they accuse me of being australian 
It's it's a hard life. But if you go to a pub for too long in London, does uh, it come then, back then, out? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. I got a chemistry joke to start with. Okay. I hope you know the answer. Go ahead. Can you tell me the chemical symbol for sodium? Na. Nah. <laughs> you missed it. You want to try it again? Take two. That's appalling. <laughs> That's an appalling joke. All right. What's the chemical formula for water? Huh? H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O. <laughs> because it's H2O. Okay. My daughter said that to me. I'm trying to laugh, but it's just not coming oh, natu- naturally. Oh, God. All right. Can you fake an American accent with your half mid-Atlantic Brit English? Well, you all, it just depends where we're going to do the accent from. That's Matthew McConaughey meets Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, somewhere somewhere in between Ireland and Boston and the Texas. The fake chimney sweep thing from Mary Poppins. Yeah. It, it kind of works. It was, you know, the y'all was not too bad. No, it's y'all. Y'all. I don't do that really well. I had... The absolutely worst Brooklyn accent you could possibly imagine. Yes. Growing up, I have video evidence of this, which has been suppressed in a vault somewhere. My own little social footprint, Fort Knox, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I've been all around the country and I've kind of lost my terrible dialect. But when I go to the Minnesotas, they kind of know you're from New York. You can't even begin to fake not being from New York. (laughs) All right. Your CV is full of really impressive syllables. I want to read this because the listeners, you you can skip ahead, listeners, but here's the greatest syllables. You're the founding president of the Tissue Engineering and Regenerative Medicine International Society. Yes. You're the Highmark Distinguished Career Professor of Disruptive Health Technology Institute at Carnegie Mellon. Yes. You are the founding director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Now that you're the VP of Biologic Syllables. Really good syllables. Yes. But you're a chemist by nature. So, yes, I trained as a a biochemist and molecular biologist. What was the first thing you blew up? Did I ever blow anything up? Oh, just make something up. Entertain me. Uh, No, I refuse. (laughs) (laughs) You're like the modern day Dexter's lab all grown up. Possibly. Yes. So, So where did this awesome nerdness show up in your youth that made you really want to get into this space? Because... It wasn't very popular. You want the truth or you want me to make something up like last time? I, no one will know the difference. Okay, I'll tell you the truth. But no one will know if it really is. Yes. Okay, excellent. Well, when the legend is fact, print the legend. Yeah. So I was not a uh, a very astute student, let's just put it that way, in England. This I know is true. And uh, did not actually succeed in high school. So I ended up leaving high school. What, Hogwarts wasn't good enough for you? It was not. Okay. I, I, I left without the necessary examination results to get into university. Ashamed muggle, are you? I was deeply ashamed. Came to America and worked in a factory for a year and had a great time. Met some of the best people I've ever met in my life. But somewhere along the way, I was introduced to Big Macs. Had Big Macs for lunch most days along with Those are good. extra fries. Those are really good. Oh, it was just wonderful. So uh, enjoyed that, did that, and then somewhere along the way decided I should probably try and figure out how to get into a university and begin my life. But of course, I didn't have the grades to do that. So I had to find a degree program that was brand new, where there were not many students. Where were you at the time in this? I was in America, in, in Cleveland, in Chardon, Ohio. They have a good casino. Did you know that? They may have now. Oh, okay. Back this then? This is pre-casino Cleveland. Back then, I think they had maple trees. Pre-LeBron. Oh, all that oh stuff. my goodness. Yes. yes. Okay. This is like back in the day. 
So came back to the UK, managed to talk my way into a degree program that had too few students. It was biochemistry and molecular biology. It would be a lie to tell you that I was in love with biochemistry and molecular biology before I started. But it turned out that I actually really fell in love with the science very quickly and kind of never looked back in terms of of that love, have never fallen out of love. I went to Binghamton University in upstate New York out of college with a five-year master's degree program admission in biotechnology and prosthetics and robotics. Wow. And by the time we got to org chemistry three at seven in the morning, that was the litmus test. Yeah. I'm like, I can't do this. Esters, ether, keto. I can't do it. I'm out. I'm going to major in lit ret. My parents are going to kill me. And then that, that's it. So I highly respect you for sticking <laughs> to it. Well, it, it was different. You know, in England in those days, I think now it's changed a little bit. But in those days at university, it was really entirely up to you to learn. So there were lectures and things like that, and there was homework, but you had to learn and you had to integrate yourself, take responsibility for that. And then at the end of three years, you took an exam in every subject you had learned along the way. And that last semester, we didn't actually have any classes. You just studied to get ready. Like the bar. Yeah. And you studied everything. And that wonderful way to cause in someone the ability to connect the dots was really, it was, it was great. It was inspirational. And there was no one telling me what to do, which was a great thing because I was never very good at listening to people telling me what to do. So it worked out. So when did you realize you could manipulate data and God and biology and do all sorts of crazy <laughs> Dr. Moreau crap? I will reject the question and answer a different question. Okay. And I think what you were trying to say very eloquently was how do you pick the lock of biology? So that's what you were trying to say, and that's what I'll answer. So first came the sequencing of DNA, right? Watson and and Crick and Rosalind Franklin. Let's not leave Rosalind out. Of course. And that opened the door to be able to manipulate biology. And as a bachelor's student, when I was in university, I just fell in love with that insane ability to be able to manipulate DNA and tell cells what to make. I just thought that was fascinating. And then I fell in love with this other area of science that really wasn't tightly connected. Of all things, it's called enzyme kinetics. Explain. Enzymes are biological catalysts. They think of your car and the catalytic converter in your car. Takes toxic stuff because there was no electric cars back then and cleans it up in an instant and spits out less toxic stuff. You still wouldn't want to stick your nose in the exhaust pipe. We know that. Yes. But it's better than without the catalytic converter, right? Less worse. So biology runs with catalysts. And inside each of our cells, inside of our body, we are accelerating reactions using the products that are made inside our cells all the time. Those are called enzymes. And because they're really, really fast, we can characterize how fast they are by sort of analyzing them really carefully and then comparing them one to another. And for some odd reason, this just as we say in England, it tickled my fancy. (laughs) Say that in the Queen's English. We tickled our fancy. So (laughs) I fell in love with that, fell in love with molecular biology. There was only one person in the world who was doing both things, using molecular biology to change enzyme kinetics. 
so I wrote to him. This was pre-email. Was it a quill? I may have used calligraphy <laughs> in the 14th letter. You know, just wrote to this guy mercilessly. He tells the story that he accepted me as a graduate student simply to stop me writing, begging. But, you know, I didn't apply to anywhere else. I just wanted to go there and do that. Otherwise, I would have gone and been a banker or something. But it worked out, right? I went there. And of all things, I worked on, uh, you probably wash your shirts from time to time. And inside... Says who? Yeah, inside... <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was just... <laughs> In the room here, there was a sniff there. So the laundry detergent has an enzyme in it, and the enzyme is called sutilicin, and it degrades proteins and fats. And, uh, and that's what gets the gunk get, out? gets you clean. But that enzyme had some liabilities, just like drugs and protein drugs have certain liabilities that don't make them work as well as you'd like them to. Is that like your version of side effects? Well, it could be side effects, but it could also just be that they don't last very long. Okay. Right? In the case of this particular enzyme, there were multiple issues. One was people wanted to get it to work at a different level of acidity and also a different temperature. Like if you want to do a hot wash and the enzyme dies when it's hot, you try and make it more stable. So this stability, making proteins last longer, has been a sort of central theme of the field for decades and in some ways the central theme of my own work over the years. It really is like an entire Hatfield McCoy culture of hot washing versus cold washing. Absolutely. Can you imagine back in the day, this is probably pre you doing your own laundry, but back in that day, you just didn't do cold washing. Of course you did hot washing because it only worked if it was hot. And then you use like the tenement yarn across the avenue That's with right. the string. <laughs> Indeed. My grandparents had that. <laughs> So that was the beginning. That's when I fell in love with science during being left alone to figure it out. That's awesome. So this guy you were nudging, he finally said, all right. He did. God bless him. That's Al a Alan, that's strategic nudgery done really well. Alan first. And what's his story? He was the luminary? Oh, he, he was big time. Yeah. I can't say anymore he was the, the most brilliant scientist I'd ever met because all these other brilliant scientists that I spend time with would be deeply offended. Right. But just between you and I and your few million listeners, he probably was the most brilliant scientist I ever still have met. He's extraordinary. One of the youngest ever members of the Royal Society. Ah. And, uh, and just a, a really, really focused, tremendous scientist. My only listener is my dad, and he keep a secret. Very good. We're Excellent. fine. That's, That's fine. good news. So what were your big teachable moments in being tutored by the most ingenious Alan mad scientist of history? The scientific method. I think lots of people have heard of that phrase. Observation, conclusion, nothing in between. <laughs> you missed out hypothesis. Yeah, okay. Right? So he taught me the importance of having a hypothesis, thinking about the right set of experiments. And then, this was the tough stuff, incredible attention to every single detail during the experimentation in order to trust and rely upon the results. And I remember to this day, I was trying to do reactions at 25 degrees, right? That was my conditions. I remember to this day, he would come in and take a thermometer and put it in my reaction. And look, and if it was 25.3, it was go back to the drawing board. <laughs> that is an extraordinary, extraordinary level of scrutiny and yes, pressure to be under. True scrutiny. 
true scrutiny. Wow. Okay. So that was the natural progression of your career. I became attracted to trying to do things that I wasn't trained to do. There was just something about the learning process that was fascinating to me. And so as I went through my career, I would come across emerging fields and I would just fall in love with them. I would just think, you know, that's really hard. I can't imagine how to do it. And people would say, you know, you'll never be able to do that. And every time someone said, you'll never be able to do that, I'm just like, okay, we're going to do that. That's my favorite thing in the world is never tell someone they can't do something. Yeah. Or always tell someone they can't yeah, do something. Yeah, yeah. Just don't you dare take away my hope. I, you know, I, right. I feel like that was like taking away hope. And so when someone tries to take away my hope, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to do it. So I've sometimes called this mastering serendipity, mm. right? And it's my father's word, his memoir that he wrote about his own life. He talked about mastering serendipity. So what is it? Because it's really characterized my career and, and my life in science. Serendipity obviously is luck, right? And how do you master luck? Well, you work really, really, really hard to gain the necessary understanding and skills and attentiveness that when you're being lucky, you recognize it. Many people are lucky. Not everybody recognizes it, both in life and in science. You've got to have done the work to know you're being lucky in science. And then you have to have done the work to know what to do to take advantage of that luck. So for me, I was lucky on a few occasions and sort of doing the right science at the right time and getting to know the right people that when I was lucky and found some of these areas that you created that introduction with, I was able to say, you know what? I think I might be able to help in that area. And eventually, a life that began doing what I would call protein engineering, figuring out how to make proteins better, shifted a little bit into a life that was looking at people engineering. You know, as a scientist, the longer you go, you end up doing your science through other people's hands. You have to inspire other people to do great work, and that becomes most of what you do. So it's quite a while since I was actually in a laboratory doing science myself. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Alan Russell, not MD, but PhD. Splendid. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You mentioned your father before. Yeah. Sounds like he played a very important role. He did. And you're like, can we talk about him? Absolutely. What did he do? He was a businessman. So he ran a chemical company in the UK that was acquired by an American company. And then he ran the sort of European and international operations for that company. And he took care of our family. And uh, he worked incredibly hard. He was very dedicated to people. And he taught us, I think all of us in the family, to recognize that a lot of people work very, very hard and don't get lucky. You know, this rather trite thing, if you work hard, good things will happen. Yeah, that's a lot of crap. It really is. It really is. So many incredible people that I met in that factory, for instance, work incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. Frankly, harder than, you know, most of the scientists I've ever met with blood, sweat, and tears, and they don't get lucky. Well, there's an exposure to humility that many people don't have mm -hmm. until either the sky falls on them or they experience other people's humility. Mm -hmm. That sounded like it was just a humbling, grounding moment for you to set forth what happened afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was very interesting. So when I failed high school, you know, you might have expected my parents to be outraged. And I'll never forget how upset I was not so much that I failed high school, but that they were so lovely to me. <laughs> I was so humiliated. It was more embarrassing to you that they weren't angry at you? It was just like, why are you hugging me, telling me it was all going to be okay? It's categorically <laughs> not okay. And I, you know, I've messed up. But that was a real learning moment. Any specific witty quips or bon mots from your dad across the ages? Oh my goodness. There are so many. And he was the person that taught me to love mountains probably figuratively and literally. We used to uh, go hiking up mountains together. Wow. I remember once in the Italian Dolomites, which is sort of related to the Alps. They're like mini Alps, right? We had gone on a long walk and we were climbing up this cliff. And we get halfway up the cliff and we realize probably can't get the rest of the way up and probably can't get the rest of the way down. Oh, dear. Right? And we were there hanging on. I remember very well hanging on and he looks up at me. I was above him. And he looks up at me and he says, you know, don't worry. This will be all right. Mm -hmm. He is probably the most supremely optimistic 96-year-old that I know. And I looked up at him. I think I was probably 13 at the time. I looked up at him and I'm like, I'm not worried. You're the one that should be worried. You brought us here. <laughs> liability and all yeah. that yeah so a few hours later we did manage to safely traverse back down we never got to the top of that particular mountain but uh, there are many many stories i could tell he's a very remarkable man so let's get into the nitty-gritty of what you do now so once you got the dopamine hit of manipulating biology for good in the world mm -hmm. what fascinated you the most about prospects over the course of the next 10 or 15 years of your career so I think I went through three major phases 
one was the phase we just talked about, which was protein engineering, doing my own stuff in my own lab. And, and that was great. It was exciting. And of all things, I focused on chemical weapons and science to defeat chemical weapons and did a lot of work in that space. Well, that, you can't just say that and move on to something else. It was serendipity. <laughs> I mastered serendipity. I already explained it to I, you. I'm sorry. I worked on the anti-weapons of mass destruction that's right. campaign. That's, 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 let's not understate that. So what we did, it's actually kind of interesting, right? So literally, I went to a seminar and I saw this scientist talk about an enzyme. We talked about that before, the biological catalyst. Some bacteria had a biological catalyst that degrades chemical weapons. Wow. Which I thought was really interesting. Like, why? And it turned out it's one of the fastest enzymes there is. So like your catalytic converter, within a few seconds, it's fast enough to, to degrade nerve agents, the most toxic chemicals known. And uh, I just thought, hmm, that's really interesting. What, you know, how are you going to use it? And this scientist sort of said, well, unfortunately, it doesn't last very long. Once you purify it, it only lasts for a day. So you really can't use it very much. And I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. We should make it last for a month or a year or 10 years. So over a long period of time, that's what we did. That's and, incredible. And it works and does interesting things. So I did that for a while. Wait, so if you tell me any more, do you have to kill me? No, not okay. at all. I let the nerve agent do that. No, just, just, just <laughs> What's kidding. that over there? Just, just kidding. We are in a sealed yeah. little hyperbaric right. radio station. Take here. a deep breath, yeah. Matt. Take okay. a deep breath. <laughs> okay. That's good. That was your last. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> wait, wait. Can you do like the Dr. Evil picky for no, me? No, no, definitely not. Uh, jumping back into science. When I was doing that, I was working with trying to figure out how to take those enzymes and make them robust, industrialize them. And that manipulation of biology to make it strong and powerful. A friend of mine, his name was Peter Johnson, came to me and he said, you know, uh, biomaterials and, and making them strong are really important in this new field. It's called tissue engineering. And honest to God, I said to him, what's that? And he explained to me that there were some incredible scientists, Bob Langer and Jay Vacanti are the two people that really gave birth to the field. And they were working on trying to figure out how to take biomaterials, those things that I'd been working on, fill them with cells, and then culture them to make what we might call neo-organs, right? New mini organ-like tissue, and then put that into the body and see if we could heal the body that way. It's called tissue engineering. Later, we called it regenerative medicine. Is that like where they grow skin for grafts exactly. kind of stuff? That's exactly the wow. kind of work. Yes. So that's um, something people could put their finger on. They really understand that science can do this now. Yes. You can grow human skin in a lab for grafts. Yes. Well, you know, what was interesting to me is it wasn't just skin. It was all sorts of different organs. Wait, tell me more. I want to know what organs you can build in a lab. Oh, nowadays? You yeah. Livers, hearts. There's all, I mean, now the science has advanced that, right. that, that really there isn't a ceiling. There is no ceiling to what can be achieved. One has to separate. I often like to talk about separating hype and hope. So that particular field of regenerative medicine, there's a lot of hype, right? There are a, right. Lot, a lot of, probably because there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of need for this kind of science, right? Well, the potential at scale is it's, tremendous. It's tremendous. It's fantastic. It's exciting. It's inspiring. And as a scientist, the problem you're trying to solve has to inspire you. Right, so this was a body of science that was really key. So 
This was really the first time I learned the importance of team. This is a complicated thing. If you're going to try and learn how to you know, grow a heart, a functioning, beating heart, one person doesn't do that. 50 people don't do it. It's the work of you know, hundreds of people all over the world, talking to each other, collaborating with each other, and finding opportunities to do that in a safe space, right? So I did that for about a decade, still working with my own science, but helping to orchestrate the science of others in this other space. So, Was this through and beyond the Human Genome Project's impact as yeah, well? Yeah, so Human Genome Project was uh, early on in my career, I think, is when they sequenced the human genome. And I thought it was fascinating, but I always remember someone very wise saying to me, you know, this is truly incredible. It's like they just published the telephone, you know, back in the old days when there was a telephone book. Well, the phone book, yeah. The phone book, right? The white pages. Yes, exactly, the white pages. So someone said to me, it's like publishing the white pages, everyone's telephone number. And, and he looked at me and he said, but you know what? What we really need to do is find out who's living with who. Right. And to this day, we're still working on that part, right? That's a, a different topic. So we're here in this massive dawn and age uh, where there used to be three approved drugs a year mm -hmm. for cancer, rare disease, whatever. Now there's like 30 grillion waiting to be approved or approved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Things are moving at light speed right now. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So how does it all come together? So... Um, I think when you think about cancer, first of all, you know, growing up, most of us think of cancer as a disease. Right. I have cancer, mm -hmm. right? And it's one of those diagnoses that, that there are some diagnoses when you go to the doctor, you don't want to hear. And the word strikes fear in your heart, you know, and, and you go back home and you start Googling. And all of a sudden, once you start self-educating, and that's key, once you start self-educating, you understand it's not a disease. Right. It's probably thousands of different diseases. Yep. So the next question that a patient has, and I think it's critical to look at this through the eyes of a patient, someone who's actually dealing with it mm -hmm. today, right, is, well, okay, I have that particular disease. What can be done for me and how does it work and when's it going to happen? Right. right? And, of course, science is non-predictable. We have to do experiments to figure out what actually works and what doesn't. And that does take time, a frustrating amount of time. Yes. But it all begins in terms of finding a drug that will do something to help. It all begins with first finding what to target, right? So science has moved so far that we're actually really good. If you think of an arrow and a quiver, right? You're pulling out an arrow and pulling back your bow and you're looking for the target that you're going to shoot, right? Which I believe should be a physical haystack versus uh, something else. But right. anyway, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to shoot that arrow. You have to find the target. You can have the best arrows in the world, but if you don't know the right target to hit, right. it doesn't really matter, does it? So that's where genetics and DNA and all of that stuff really come in because the powerful ability to have that index of everything in our body and try and understand those pathways and decode, as it were, right. the code of human life, unpick the lock, right? That's how do you find the target. And in the science of figuring out how to defeat cancer, we have 
thousands of people, thousands of scientists working to do just that, to figure out what's the best target, looking at tumors, figuring out what at the molecular level is on their surface that we could use as a handle, right? And here's the beauty of science. And we talked before about being told, you know, you'll never be able to do that, right? Those targets, oftentimes, you'll hear people say, oh, that's not the target. You'll never be able to hit that. <laughs> Famous last words every time. Yeah. And, you know, it may take 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? But drugging the undruggable then is the work of the drug hunters. So there's the target hunters and the drug hunters, right? But it's exponential too. Of course. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. So final question here. In a unicorn manifest of the next nine years, mm -hmm. are we going to be at a point, if it is truly Moore's law mm -hmm. of genetics, will we have the Star Trek tricorder one day that will instantly target your DNA on the N of one level based on your DNA and know yeah. exactly the right thing to give you to make it go away? Yeah. So... We all hope so. Right. Right. Why nine years? Why not five years? Right. But let's put this in perspective that I think is different than, than just a simple length of time. Right. I think that our children's children will be the beneficiaries of so much of this science. Right. This is not easy. Defeating cancer is not easy. Cancer spent billions of years figuring out how to defeat us. Mm -hmm. Right. People don't even know that. It's yeah. been around since the dawn of, of evolution. Course, of course. So it's really not very surprising that it might take us a few decades right. to figure out how to fight back. It's actually extraordinary. The passion of the scientists in, in our industry, in the biotechnology industry, is unbelievable. And to, to see what they've done, not just with cancer, you know, with COVID. If you close your eyes for a moment and think back to the, the month after COVID was announced as a thing and we're all in lockdown, and people are like, what happens now? Right. Well, what happened now is the passionate scientists who've spent their entire careers getting ready recognize that this is one of those moments to master serendipity and figure out how to do it, right? The same thing is occurring every single day in laboratories around the world focused on cancer, not broadly, but specific cancers, specific targets. The drug hunters are working really hard. Will it happen tomorrow? No. Will it happen in five or 10 years? I don't know. There will be huge advances. There always are. Every single year, someone says, we've just done something that was impossible. Right. And we've done it. And it was a beautiful marriage between the target hunters and the drug hunters. And they got together and they did it. They nailed the target. They hit the center of the target. Right. And every now and again, of course, we hit the target perhaps less accurately. Right. Right. That's just the nature of things. But I believe our children's children will walk into doctor's offices and hear the word cancer and not be filled with fear. I really believe that. And it's the work of the people that I'm humbled to, to work with you know, today and people like them uh, around the world that, that will lead to that. You know, back in the day, if you went to the doctor and said, sorry, you got strep throat, could have been devastating. A devastating thing to hear. You know, and then along came antibiotics. And now it's just, hey, you got strep throat, here you go. Take your Z-Pack. It's a nice positive allegory to lend. And just to wrap up again, yeah, maybe the moral arc bends toward justice, but the science arc 
always winds up doing the impossible. Yes, that's right. Alan Russell, PhD, could not save <laughs> Wesley Snipes on Passenger 57. A vice president of Biologics at Amgen, it's a pleasure to meet you, to know you, and to have you on the show. Thanks so much. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>